This week on The Zone of Truth, Griff and I welcome on special guest Tim Hitchcock, author of Carrying Crown Book 3, Broken Moon. We discuss his career writing for Paizo, his favorite parts of the book, and of course, answer some listener questions. I'm your host, Steve. And s- well, I'm not in the studio. I'm actually in my apartment right now, but I'm still talking with your GM and my co-host, Griffin. Roll a will save. You're in The Zone of Truth. And we're back. And clearly I wrote that intro before I realized I was going to record this one at home again. <laughs> there you go. You know, it's always good to be prepared, Steve. I'm glad we're a beacon of uh, preparation and uh, forethought. Listen, I, I was prepared. I was just prepared for the wrong thing. That's okay. Yeah. We all do that sometimes. And I would Speaking say, of prepared. I would say it was a pretty seamless pivot, by the way. Yeah, it was. It was seamless. Are you, have you prepared yourself with a beverage this evening? I have. Tonight, um, I wanted to drink something Pathfindery, so I dug deep in my fridge. I'm drinking a beer from a brewery called Two Brothers. It's a Wizard Staff IPA. Okay. And yourself, Griffin, you having anything tonight? I just have a Vizzy. I had a couple of those left over from the weekend. Oh, fair enough. Fair enough. Mellow well, Monday night. Hello, Monday night, indeed. Very minimal BS at the top, Griffin, because we got a great guest. Absolutely. I think this this takes us over. We're we're interviewing real professionals now. This is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, we're going to get right to it today. You may know him as the author of Broken Moon, Carrying Crown's book three that was just completed on the show. But his other credits include entries and adventure paths such as Kingmaker, Giant Slayer, Iron Gods, and many more. He has several Pathfinder module and society scenario credits to his name and has contributed to the Pathfinder Chronicles and campaign setting lore building series of books. Welcome to the show, Tim Hitchcock. Hey. Hey, Tim. How you doing? Oh, we are just so enthused to have you on. I am so over the moon that you uh, you agreed to come chat with us. I was psyched that you wanted to have me on. Yeah. It's it's great to to have you here, Tim. Like like we were covering before we even started recording. We just finished Broken Moon and we loved it. It was so much fun. We we love the way or the spin you put on the your your little portion of the campaign. And we have so many questions for you. <laughs> Thanks. So we're hoping you have some answers. All right. We'll see if we I, get I, into I might. It. <laughs> I, I I don't know. I'm hoping I have some answers too. I hope I can make this interesting. And, and if you don't. It'll just be a shorter episode. It'll That's be a shorter fine. episode. There we go. Hey, man. Or we'll just shoot the shit about other stuff. It's fine, too. All right. Cool. <laughs> well, Tim, uh, I, I, I led with some of your credits up at the beginning, but for those of you who are a little bit more unfamiliar with the Pathfinder world, the Pathfinder books, or uh, just your work in general, who are you, man? Uh, I'm a gamer that likes to write stuff, and I, at one point, sent something into dragon magazine and i wrote my first article and they took it and i said this has got to be a mistake so i wrote another one (laughs) and they took it and i keep saying this has got to be a mistake so i kept writing and i kept getting published 
<laughs> well, we're glad you just did. fell into getting and that's, published. And that's, that's like if you know if you keep rewarding somebody, they'll keep doing something. So I got duped. They kept. They it's kept. Like, <laughs> it's like the bell. That, <laughs> They're that, ringing the bell. Then all of a sudden, you the- keep hearing, you like you hear a list of credits, and you're like, "Wow, I did." Uh, it, uh, maybe it's not a fluke, but I still think it's a fluke. So I still keep writing stuff. I haven't. I haven't quite learned my lesson yet. I'm a little slow. <laughs> Well, well, Tim, uh, do you remember what that first article was? The first article, actually, uh, I got paid for it. It didn't get published, but Chris uh, Perkins put it in or bought it for Dragon Magazine, and it was a collection of weird symbols, trail markers for rangers and stuff like that. And then the next thing I wrote, I wrote for Dungeon Magazine. They were taking all these; they wanted people to write proposals for dungeon and this is right when 3.0 came out so it was a brand new system i'm like oh the floor is clean everybody's got a clean slate i should do this now and they were like we're taking all these proposals and if you write a short one you could just write the adventure and don't have to write a proposal and i'm like well maybe i'll do that maybe i'll just be lazy so i wrote a short one and i sent that in and they published that you mean I could do less and get it published right away? <laughs> right. So I did a short adventure and they published that. And then I, I wrote another short adventure. It was the same thing. If I if I wrote a proposal, I spent all this time writing proposals and they were like, no, that sucks. That's terrible. So I just wrote short ones and I would send them in and they, they would take them. And then at that point, you know, eventually Paizo took over, of course, Dungeon and Dragon magazine. And I was writing a lot just constantly for them and uh and they said hey we're gonna go do this and i went well i'm gonna i'll go do that with you guys let me let me follow you guys along and if you give me work i will write for you which was did you find that was the that was the way to kind of be successfully published like getting in on the ground floor of that stuff well i think 3.0 and then i i i think I really like the the idea of of Dungeon and Dragon magazine back then was like any idiot like myself could just kind of walk up and uh, you know write something and send it in and if people really liked it and related to it it would get published so you could share with the community and I think that was a really nice way to go about doing that because everybody who plays this game yourself and Steve and everybody you guys are all designers you just you know you're just you're doing it in your own world in your own way in your own forum and at the time like i i didn't have a group at the time i was kind of isolated at the time and that was my way of playing was just to submit stuff to the magazines i wasn't even really playing that much i just couldn't at the time (laughs) that's what that's what they say like uh people online ask for well what's a one-player campaign i could play be an author <laughs> well, <laughs> the, the, the one the one player campaign like uh joel when when gary gygax died joel uh siegel in the new york times he, he said he wrote the greatest game of all time because it's just as much fun actually he said it differently i disagree with him he said it's more fun to think about playing than actual play but <laughs> it's just kind of funny because sometimes it is um but it it, it we spend so much time doing character creation and thinking about that and preparing about that. It's really, that's, that's what the game is. It's, it's the anticipation of what you're going to do next, be it writing a campaign setting or thinking about a rule set or how am I going to build my character or what am I going to, I'm waiting for these three people to go and I've been waiting for 20 minutes. What am I going to do next? Let me make sure that my turn's in order because I've been waiting for so long. So it's like this great thing of anticipation. And I think that's where the immersion and the the neat thing about your brain goes. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, anyone here can attest to the amount of character concepts that have never been played but have been built. Right. So it's it's yep. it's, it's all in anticipation, and then that was really having that nice big public forum like that in a way and having that community thing it's really nice and so you know now you see the forums online and there's abilities to do that and there's whole communities around different sections of things and what people like and don't like and different types of and uh and so it's still there which is fantastic yeah absolutely love the way it's been growing so so let's talk a little bit more about your growth man so you were writing for dungeons and dragons you know you're kind of uh, grandfathered a little bit into to Paizo and 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 their whole their whole shebang. Yeah, I, uh, what I did you start in, writing? I about? slipped yeah. in because they needed they needed writers at the time. They were going to be a new company, and I got I got lucky. I I definitely know like they had great editors. They had uh, an incredible staff with an incredible work ethic, and I was in the right place at the right time. I got very 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 lucky. Was it kind of just a, a natural progression, or did you just find one day that you were you used to be writing Dungeons and Dragons stuff, and now I'm going to write a Pathfinder adventure? Um, well, not to say it's the exact same game, but it, it was pretty darn close at the time, and it mm-hmm. was very clear to me that Watsi was going in a different direction with 4E, and um. Uh, I I actually wrote a 4E module. I think I wrote maybe the first 4E module, and it showed up in like Dragon Magazine Digital or something. Um, and I have like I have copies of my 4E copies of the books are like the 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 black and white ones with the ring binders that they give you before they release the things. Like <laughs> look at this. So I have like these like you know. I, they're probably worth nothing, but you know that's <laughs> <laughs> the pre-screening of 4E, right. everyone's favorite, <laughs> right? Which is you know because they wanted me to write some stuff like that, and I I walked I I looked at it and I I liked it, but uh, I I was comfortable with what I was doing with Pathfinder. Uh, it was I didn't have to change rule sets, and I literally walked up to James Jacobs and I said, James, please give me a lot of work because otherwise I'm going to take a bunch more 4E stuff, and I'd much rather write a bunch of Pathfinder stuff. And he said, okay, and they put me to work and then two years and then two years later when they became successful they paid me for it (laughs) which is awesome how did they introduce you to i guess the the world of galarian Uh, how was that like a they they didn't introduce me there was no world of galarian (laughs) when i started right it kind of grew out of what people were writing so they they you know they they started releasing stuff and it was just like hey uh we have this area. Do you want to play in it for a while and, you know, glob on it? We have this idea about this and we have this idea about this. Galarian specifically is the I, – I, every designer that they had, every editor that they had uh, was – well, not every editor, but uh, every designer that they had there had their own take of what they were really good at. And so when I think about different worlds, I think about – or different – parts of Galarian, I definitely think about uh, different people that are associated with that and the design in it and the different personalities of those people and of those individuals, which is really, really cool. So that's how it was introduced to me, you know, because I I kind of knew who was going to do what. And it really reminds me of individuals more than even a setting. That's, <laughs> that's, that is so cool. That's awesome. Yeah, that's absolutely the coolest take you could probably have on it. Because a lot of people do say it's like, okay, well, 
you know, Galarian has all of these grand ideas in a bunch of different areas. And right. Some of the areas are connected and some of the areas are less so. And I and I look at it and I go, oh, that's that's Wes and that's James, uh, you know, Sutter and that's James Jacobs over there and that's and that's and that's definitely Eric Mona and that's you know, I can it's it was really fun in that regard. You know, and, and you knew when you were writing for somebody who you were writing for and what the editor was going to do and who was like Chris Carey, unbelievable editor and, and Judy's great editor and stuff like that. You know, did you find that affected your writing at all when oh, you knew exactly whose world you were working in? Um, to a degree, yeah, because, there, you know, a lot of these people are giving you direction as well. And if you if you have an idea for their personalities, you, you do try to make somebody happy. You're trying to, you know, because... You know, adventure design, it's not like writing a book. It's, it's, you, you, somebody's invited you to, to be a gremlin and they say, come into my world and what would you do to fuck up my section of the world as bad as you possibly could? So somebody <laughs> might want to save my creation. So basically, you're going in as a gremlin and you're fucking up somebody else's creation as much as you possibly can. Which is, you know, which is to me, it's really, really fun. I, I enjoy doing that a lot more because <laughs> something's wrong with me, but a lot more <laughs> than actually writing a story and, you know, with a happy ending and stuff. I'm not trying to write the happy ending. I'm trying to write the worst possible ending. Right. And it's up to the You're players the to make the happy ending. I, I think it's from yeah. growing up in the 70s where like all these movies had like really screwed up endings like Butch Cassidy and his Sundance Kid where they're at the end and they're hemmed in and they're shooting everybody. And then they, they just jump off a cliff because they're screwed. <laughs> like it's like that's well, Butch. I guess that's the end of it, <laughs> and it was. <laughs> this is how I'm going to write adventures. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> that's awesome. It's, so, it's fun too because you have that personal connection a little bit, and so it's like I wouldn't say it's like oh, I'm getting into messing with your stuff. But I, I can imagine it feels a little bit like that, too. It is. And, you know, if you know your audience, that's what you're going to do. And you, you think about your friends who might be going to play this, and, you, and you, you screw with them. Like, this is this is what you do. It's like, I know when you took my adventure, if you didn't at least rewrite half of it, you, you did it wrong. You needed to rewrite this stuff for your players, and you needed to figure out what they need. And if you had the right trail of breadcrumbs, that's all I'm trying to do. Because oh, yeah. if you're not doing that, you're not thinking about the people that are playing the game. You're doing it wrong. You should be rewriting most of what you get in a published adventure to make sure that it fits what you want it to do. And hopefully there's enough pieces and stray pieces where you go, oh, yeah, this is going to be perfect, or, or I don't need this in all you know like when you're putting together ikea furniture and you got that straight bolt <laughs> but that's for the one guy who's like oh uh, this is going to be perfect for what i'm going to do this stray bolt here i have a player that likes this bolt and, yeah. and so you know I, I try to do that when i'm creating something well i could say the entire werewolf section of this book was a playground for me being able to run it. It was it was a phenomenal groundwork, I'll say, to to have a character that is involved in that in some way, especially like when you think about the Prince of Wolves lore and Galarian and that kind of thing. Right. It ties in really well. Awesome. So, 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 Tim, I want to, I, I want to talk a little bit more about writing these adventures. You, you're going in, you're fucking up somebody's world. Does that descriptor count for both your module writing, where you can, where it feels like one author really controls the, the, the story, or does that also apply to, to your writing in an adventure path? Because that, there's a lot. It feels like there would be a little bit more collaboration with more writers. 
Well, you know, that's not necessarily true. Like a lot of the modules okay. I did with Pathfinder, like especially the earlier ones, like one of the things I love collaborating with people. Like, because, mm-hmm. like, I know what I'm going to do, right? Which isn't fun or surprising to me. I would much rather work with somebody else because I don't know what they're going to do. And that's going to bring stuff out of me that, like, I'm like, I didn't know I had that in me, or they're going to surprise me on their own. So, like, when we first started doing Pathfinder, uh, right from the start, there were secret Pathfinder message boards, and they invited all the authors on there to just, you know, they were like, we're a new company, we need ideas, we need to generate this machine, we need to get it going you guys who are our core authors, would you just pitch us a bunch of ideas? And so all the authors went on there. You had to create authors, Nick Logue and Mike Cortez, and Steve Greer and Greg Vaughn and Richard Patton. They all went on there and they started posting all these great ideas. And I went on there and I was like, let me, let me see if this works. So I was like, oh, I really like that idea. And I would start adding stuff to everybody's idea. I would go on every day and like, you know, let's, let's work with this. Let's work with this. Mm-hmm. And then they started to release the modules. And somebody's like, yay, my module's coming out. And I was like, yeah, that's the one we worked on together. And they're like, yeah, it's coming out. And then somebody else was like, yeah, my module's coming out. And I'm like, yeah, that's the one we worked on together. And all of a sudden, everybody just got silent. They were like, jackass. You worked on all our modules. Is that all of these? <laughs> so yes, the gremlin is there for I guess for all of it. But well, within that's, a, that's but, great. Yeah. yeah. But within an adventure path specifically, um, you have each adventure path is definitely has a lead designer on it, and they're going to give you direction. They're going to give you continuity, and that is going to hold true. And they're going to probably do a lot of rewriting and re-edits and stuff like that. Like any anything you like about my writing, you also like the writing of all the other people that worked on it as well. Like James Jacobs is phenomenal at making my stuff a thousand times better than it is. Wes Schneider, the same thing. Um, and and so, you know, they have a nice strong direction. They have a solid path of what they want it to go through. They're going to give you some ideas. We want you to cover these sections in this section. This is what's going to happen after. This is before. These are the breakdowns of all the little ones. Feel free to talk to any of the authors. What are you doing in your part? What are you doing? And, you know, hey, how can I set you up for this one? Hey, could you do something for me all the way back here that's going to be, you know, three down like that? And, and, mm-hmm. and hopefully that gives it that, that, that breadth of stuff. So. so so when your creative director comes up with a story, uh, he or she picks six people. How do, how do they know where to put who? Is, is it something like Tim Hitchcock's very good at writing mid-level sandboxy stuff? I'm going to throw him at book three and tell him I want people to explore a city. Maybe. Maybe. You know, King, Kingmaker started out with James Jacobs calling me saying, uh, Tim, I'm writing the first adventure to this Kingmaker thing, and uh, I could use a little help. Could you draw me a couple of maps? I need some maps. You're good at doing maps. Could you draw me a bunch of maps for this? I need a map for this, 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 this. So I draw him a bunch. Of, sure, James, no problem. I draw him a bunch of maps. A couple weeks go by, and he says, uh, Tim, I'm falling way behind on this Kingmaker thing. Could you, uh, could you write the encounters? for these maps (laughs) and little by little it goes to all of a sudden I'm writing the first adventure for Kingmaker and then James you know at the end he comes and he adds the pieces to makes it all fit together and there's there's the intro to the adventure path which he wrote in the end but like pretty much you know I'm writing everything in the middle 
yeah. <laughs> right? So it could be like that. You know, who's available, who's not available. Maybe I think this guy would be good at writing this. He's available now. We used him on the last adventure path. We don't want to use him again. Or, oh, my God, that last piece Hitch got turned in was complete poop, and I really don't I – don't, I can't edit that gobbledygook again. I need a break from him. Can we can we put him off until like you know next year or something? So it could be any number of reasons. They think you're good at that particular thing. You're available at that particular time. Uh, people want something from you at that time, and that seems like a logical space for you. Or you know you might be the lowest man on the totem pole where they're like, oh, you know this guy would be great at this. 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 Let's have Tim Hitchcock write the one in the middle, Broken Moon. It's okay. That's the transit. He helped all of those guys with their modules. <laughs> right. So he, no, you know, that's how he up with the adventure. Well, part. you know, it's I, I didn't help them. I wrote. I snuck in my parts on their on their <laughs> stuff. It's a little different. They were perfectly capable of writing that stuff on their own. Absolutely. I'm just insidious. <laughs> do you what, do you find that even if even if they're not necessarily targeting you for a certain like level range type of adventure do you find there's something you gravitate towards is there something you prefer to write um yeah most definitely i i like writing the the starts of adventures right um Mm -hmm. only because when uh you know i don't know I'll, i'll i'll have to see how i feel about it with like different rule sets it's so much easier to write the start of the adventure because there's a lot less math Writing an adventure for publication is such a task compared to GMing for your home game. It's a completely different beast. It's a completely different animal. It's so precise. You have to check everything. It's a pain in the ass. I don't know why I like it. I don't know when I became like myopic about stuff like that because usually I'm just like, you know, let me just throw something together and be done with it. Yeah. But you start to realize that and you start to, you know, especially with some, uh, you know, Pathfinder, um, the original system in 3.5, it's that number stacking and you have to go over all these little details and stuff like that. And when you get into like a giant stat block at the end, you're just like, oh, this is, this is a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I I can feel you having read through Orin Vrid's stat block at the end yeah, <laughs> at you, the end of Broken Moon. It's just like so much stuff. You're like, what the frick? Like this is it's it's maniacal. And he's a brand new uh, prestige class in the book. Right, and all new of that prestige well. class, and we're going to add a template on top of him. We're going to, you know, and that's me just being stupid because, of course, as the dungeon master, you know, you, you're not thinking about when you're writing, oh, we could do this and this and this and this is going to be great. The dungeon master goes, <laughs> that's it. That's your stat block. It's like it's it's in the trash. It's the resume that's too long, and 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 the, and the GM is just going to run it the way they they think is going to make the most sense within that encounter, and and half that stuff might not even come up, but it's there. And again, I think a lot of people read these adventure paths. Uh, I most certainly did. Um, you know, in Dragon Magazine and stuff like that, you know, I, I read all this stuff as if it is some kind of novel or something, and I read it for the entertainment. So I have all those ideas floating around in my head uh, when I'm playing something like that, and I'm using them in that way. But I probably don't use. I, I don't think I ever use anything as written. I can't. I'm not. It's, I'm not quick enough. <laughs> I'm just <laughs> that's, like, yeah. That's a that's a twenty. <laughs> I, I'm too proud to say that, but you're right. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's that's the truth of it. Because you're trying to make the game fun as well, and and fun is not somebody going, wait a minute, let me let me look at this stat block over here, and it's a that's not fun. 
you know, you want to keep that. got undead traits. Right. <laughs> That is that is interesting. You bring up liking to start the or liking to write the beginnings of adventures, though, because I I feel like in the grand scheme of Carrion Crown, and I'm going to keep coming back here because it's near and dear to us. But it feels like Broken Moon is where the chase of the campaign begins. Really, it feels like the first two books are kind of set up, and they don't really have a lot to do with the Whispering Way, and then you kind of. You hit this bad guy at the end of Broken Moon that almost feels like he could be an overarching villain in the campaign. Right. And that's what starts the chase. So I think in some ways the book is a start to a story because the story takes a very different turn after Broken Moon than it had. Yeah, it most certainly does. And that's and that's fun. I mean, for me, it's I'm just talking about the math. Like I just I just finished uh, we're doing the 10th anniversary of Kingmaker. And I just finished trying to transpose the last part of that Owlcat uh, video game into a final chapter of Kingmaker that didn't exist before, which is it's a co-thing with Paizo and Legendary Games. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you're starting to look at these stat blocks that they have in there, and it's just like the lock on the door has to be DC-53, which is – and you're <laughs> going, who's building that lock? Like, like – <laughs> You know, <laughs> came from Abadar's vault. <laughs> it's 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 insane. So, you know, it's 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 that kind of thing that kind of gets to me after a while. But you know, it's fun either way. Yeah. So, uh, so, so getting into some Carrion Crown specific questions, then, just in general, you're going into Carrion Crown. Um, what was that pitch like? Someone, someone hit you up and was like, "Hey, I want you to write part of the uh, what I believe is the first Pathfinder horror AP." Right. It is. I believe it was the first one they did. Well, it's because it's Ustalov, okay, and that's and that was oh, yeah. that was that was Wes. It's Wes Snyder, like straight up, like. So when you look at the map, you see Wes's name right there. I and I, 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 I absolutely adore Wes. He was one of my favorite editors. He was so good to me back in the Dragon days. Like every bit of advice he has, I have like in a notebook of Wes stuff and macros that he's like, why don't you try this macro and help you with your, you know? He was fantastic to me, and so I was just ecstatic to be working for Wes, you know, um, on that. And then he had some great ideas about you know what he where he wanted it to go and he's i mean he's just he's a genius he's a genius how and how much did you know about the other books in the ap like i said they give you a breakdown of the whole thing mm-hmm. i was I, I would have pulled it up but again my my stupid mac died and i was like all my notes from that are gone now i don't know i've been doing this <laughs> you know that was uh, what what year was this like maybe 2006 maybe 2008 uh, i don't even remember it, it was published in uh, 2011. 2011. So, so I probably, probably ten years ago. I probably right, and I probably wrote it like a year before it got published. You know, as it goes through the editing passes, it's not. Yep. It is a lengthy process of. You know, it's. I think it takes it's takes so much longer than just writing something for your home game. Were you particularly excited coming into this one? I well, I was excited to work with Wes. I, I love the ideas he was giving, and like I said, they give you you know they give you the end, they give you the beginning. A lot of the other writers at the at the time, like they're people, you know, I go hang out with them at Gen Con and stuff like that, and we were frequently talking all the time. We just get really excited about doing this. Like it's it's uh, it's super fun. So anytime I got 
you know, carrying crown, I was really excited about, but anytime I get an adventure path, I was, I was always excited to write something. I'm always excited mm-hmm. to write something, you know, a project or something like that. So I don't know if there's any more, any less, like it's cause it's just, it's every day. It's like, yeah, I get to, I get to write something. <laughs> Some cool and new to play with. Something cool and new to play with. And, and, uh, you know, and Brandon Hodge was going to be in this one and he's so creepy, man. He's got like an occult store in, in, uh, in Austin, Texas, where he, where he lives and a candy shop. Like he's so cool. He's got an occult store and a candy <laughs> shop. Yeah, t- name two things that go together better than occult stores and candy, candy shops, shop. Candy shop. I mean, like, <laughs> he's the first person I ever chocolate covered bacon you know i mean that's fantastic he's like i brought some chocolate covered bacon for gen con you know and he's such a great writer and and mike cortez's piece was totally spooky and you know it's 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 always fun when you see who they've pulled together to do the whole path as well so that was again i was just juiced about it great yeah well so when you when you learned about your piece of the adventure, uh, what stood out to you? What, what did you really want it to hit hard? They, they told you you're writing the werewolf book. Yeah, I, I wanted to I wanted to find a way to um, tell a werewolf story that was very, very different. Like everybody's mm-hmm. played werewolf, the apocalypse. And, you know, we have these typical ideas about werewolves and there's so much culture in Ustalov and, and I, I wanted to do something really different. And then I wanted to have all the werewolves and not have the werewolf be the werewolf. I wanted to put some kind of twist on it. So I, I started going through like all this Slavic lore and that, that ghost werewolf thing was just like, the Vilcasis. I was yeah. like, oh, I, yeah. wanted, I want to do that. That's that. I think that's going to be, that's going to put a really nice spin on it. And then how can I pull Desna into it and, and, and pull like some, some, some salvation and some other elements of it and turn it into like a really, um, a creepy story and a very occult story with werewolves as a centerpiece, but not necessarily the traditional werewolf story that, you know, and leave that open for everybody else to tell because because we like our tropes and everybody's probably told that before. Let me see what else I can do with it. Mm-hmm. I think one of my favorite pieces of the, of the werewolf lore incorporated into the book was how different you made each of the werewolf clans. And so we had the, we had the five clans as kind of the centerpiece that the party's learning about and they're, you know, they're essentially warring for power, but the politics <laughs> you don't expect necessarily in a in a werewolf campaign. Well, right, you know, you you expect them to be more brutal, which is the you know the original idea of the werewolf. Um, but like the idea, the whole concept of the werewolf. Uh, my favorite concept. I don't know if you guys have ever read any Anton Lavey, the famous uh, Satanist. I love that guy. He's funny. He's really, really funny. Like the guy starts out as a, he started out as a, a piano player in uh, church. And then mm-hmm. to make money on the side, he, he went to burlesque shows and he was like, the same people are in the church in the burlesque. <laughs> he goes, these people are all full of shit. I'm going to start the first church of Satan. And he writes this book called the, the devil's notebook, which is a really, really, it's a funny book. Like he, he talks about like the, 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 the purpose of the whoopee cushion and everything else. But there's a whole chapter on how to become a werewolf in that book how to actually how do you become a werewolf and he talks about werewolves as being somebody who is at home in a place that is intimidating and creepy to other people like the like the forest people back then were really afraid of the forest and if you went in the forest you were going to die right this is why we have fairy stories 
right? Mm-hmm. right. Scare the kids. Don't go in there because, of course, you're going to get eaten by monsters. That's not the truth. You're going to get lost and starved to death, which is even worse. <laughs> right? You get eaten by yep. a monster. It's one and done. Like starving to death is horrible in like the Black Forest in Germany in 1624. That's got to be a <laughs> god awful death. Right? And so, so his theory was like, you know, people that went and they're in there and they're there all the time and they lived like that and they got comfortable. Like people would see them and they would see them wearing the forest, that big ominous thing as a, uh, as a costume. And uh, I live in New York. Right, New York City, and I'm on Staten Island. And at the time, across the street from me was this huge, monstrous, abandoned factory, which was terrifying. You know, they're like, oh, crackheads live in there, and everybody was scared of the factory. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to become a werewolf. I'm going to see if he's right. So I crossed the street and I broke into the factory and I spent like a month and a half in this factory memorizing all the little paths and turns and creeping through all the places in the factory. I'm sorry, I, what? Right? I wanted to memorize it so I could, so I could, I, I, I got so I could go in there at night and I wouldn't die, you know, I wouldn't fall through like holes in the floor. I knew where all the holes were and everything inside this abandoned factory. And and I and I got and it got to be like my playground. I became very comfortable, and it was really fun, right? And I'd forgotten my original intent of what why I went to do this because I would go up in there and I'd paint art, and I would hang up on the roof, and I would watch the boats go by. And I was like, how could I ever let this beautiful rotten abandoned factory go? This is fantastic! Like this is this is the best playground ever, right? Mm-hmm. And I go to the deli one day, and somebody's like, hey man, did you see that? And I'm listening to these two kids talk, and they're like, yo man, there's a monster running around in that factory, and I'm like. <laughs> monster and I'm like oh. <laughs> it worked I'm the werewolf it worked <laughs> that's amazing that might be my favorite story someone's told on this show <laughs> he's, he's the monster of the factory I was, I was like I'm the monster in the factory I scared all these little kids and nobody nobody asked if you were a crackhead nobody. <laughs> maybe scared that's off a- all the crackheads there weren't any. There weren't any crackheads. It was funny. Like years later, I went back and they had this art festival on the property mm-hmm. of the factory, like a Lumen Festival. It was like an international festival, and they're showing all these cool, risque art things, like on the ground of the salt factory. And I'm like, you know, there's a whole bunch of art on the roof that my friends and I did. That's like strike rogue art that none of these people will ever see. There's a permanent display on the roof of this thing, and they don't even know it. They're throwing this fancy like. <laughs> you know wine and cocktails party and i was like there's some really cool anarchist art on the top of this factory that nobody will ever see that's awesome that uh yeah i guess i mean it sounds like that's exactly becoming a werewolf then that's and that's what it is and so the idea is like you know the ones in Felgrau would take on this part and the ones that are living in these things, they, 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 they embody what, what they are, but they also have these human elements and they also have these needs and they also have these other objectives and stuff like that. And they're comfortable in their surroundings and, and, and like, you know, and that's what I wanted. I wanted to give them that element as well, because we always fo- focus on the monstrous elements of, mm-hmm. of, of monsters. And I think what makes them truly scary is they're more human elements, because I don't think there's anything scarier than human beings. I, I find human beings absolutely terrifying. You watch something like uh, any of the modern zombie survival stuff, and it's like the humans are what you yeah, it's a look soap out opera. for. Yeah. It's a soap yeah. opera. Absolutely. <laughs> That's, nobody watches zombie movies for the zombies. They watch it to see what people are going to do in that situation. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Riff. Yeah, but I think uh, I think one other thing that was uh, done phenomenally here was 
um, I love the characterization of the werewolf clans, but also of these aristocrats, this this group of aristocrats that I think I think this is one of the one of the top adventures I've read in terms of like character description and like gossip about these people and and their motives. It was really fun to actually bring these people to life because you had uh, you you wrote so much to go on. Uh, with these characters, you know, you have these ten characters in the lodge, and you can really characterize them well because each of them has almost half a page of just like in-depth de- um, aspects of their both their character and their social life. Oh, thank you, uh, Wes. Uh, Wes had some inspiration for me with that as well, and and he talked about that, and we and and I he definitely wanted to have that that claustrophobic feeling about people and again i love doing character studies like that because i think people are so much more interesting than you know a a one-dimensional monster or something like that having those levels so i'm glad it came through yeah it was it was particularly creepy Uh, like you said humans are the scariest thing of all Um, to be stuck in this forest you cannot leave the lodge effectively um, you're kind of stuck on on like a desert island almost in there and you really don't know who you're in there with Nobody really trusts each other and uh, is very creepy. Did you have any uh, particular personalities in that in that lodge that, that you really enjoyed writing or took like an interesting inspiration? I ask because the last time I asked you what your inspiration was, you uh, uh, became a werewolf in a factory for a month and a half. And so I'm wondering, I'm wondering what else you got for me. I was, I really liked the, the one thing that I was interested in was the, the the woman that was having like the illicit affair oh yeah, and I, really wanted to, I wanted the marquise to really like pull different people and she'd look really suspicious and you know and then you find out it's you know she's doing that and then there was another one that i named what the heck was her name the um the one that started with a, a v and I don't want to mispronounce it, but it, I looked it up as a Russian name, and then I got in trouble on the forums because everybody sounded it said, sounded too much like a woman's body part, and they were offended and they were mad at me for this. And it wasn't Ivania, was it? <laughs> it's, it's it's something like that. Something like that. Yeah, it's just like Ivania or something like that, and they were like, "It sounds too much like a lady's body part." I was like, "I did not. I looked it up. It's <laughs> Russian. Damn it! It's not my intent. <laughs> the trolls—they're here. They're everywhere." Oh my gosh, this stuff I've been accused of. <laughs> you have no idea. The boards are just calling shots I at you. I tell you, they do. They're like, hungry are the dead. Like, I, I'm really close. And then somebody, or there were ghouls. And then somebody got really mad at me because, of course, the players would recognize them because ghouls are purple. Because at the time, the original Monster Manual had purple ghouls in it for some reason. I was like, but they're not always purple. Like, I'm sorry. I don't know. <laughs> what do you say? I'm like... What do you do? Uh, oops. Yes, yeah, I'm so sorry. <laughs> your your module killed my character. I... Uh, yeah, you're sorry. Your module module killed someone here. I'm, I'm sorry. Nobody told you to wear you know plate mail on get on a boat. <laughs> That's called an anchor. I didn't do it. <laughs> they flipped the boat. You sunk. It's not my fault. <laughs> it's actually a. Uh... Not altogether too far away from a character of Griff's dying off off podcast. <laughs> oh yeah, it's because he happen. didn't I wear his armor, armor off, on though. a boat. It's because yeah. I took my armor off. <laughs> Take your armor off. <laughs> I don't know. 
I just I just finished. I did the the Cyclops con for DCC Dungeon Crawl Classic. So anybody who's complaining about their characters dying in Pathfinder, <laughs> you have no idea. That was just like one down, two down. Okay, I step across this. You're dead. <laughs> you're dead, and then your other character's dead. And you play four at a time, and they just you rip up the sheets like this. It's like. What's your what's your backup stash looking like? How many? Oh, you do. You have to. You have to. You have to tap a villager, and if you're lucky enough, they'll come in. Then you can play that villager, and he can run after somebody with a potato and a stick and die. (laughs) The never never ending uh, surge of villagers. That's pretty much what it was. I love it. It's like Absolutely. how some people beat Tomb of Annihilation and stuff. They just send the <laughs> send all the NPCs to trigger all the traps. There you go. Well, well, Tim, we wanted to have you on. You, you wrote Broken Moon, but you also have a couple other horror credits to your name in the Pathfinder universe. I'm looking at the module Carnival of Tears. Uh, I saw you contributed to a book called Horror Realms. You, 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 you seem to be like a, a little bit of an expert here on injecting horror into Pathfinder. Do you like writing horror in particular for, for TTRPGs, or is that just something you kind of stumble into because that's what they need you for? Um, It's... I think the tradition of horror... Uh, and the classic horror, those elements are all in traditional turn of the 19th century into the tw- early 20th century uh, science fiction fantasy genre. The genre back then wasn't a there wasn't a horror genre, there wasn't a science fiction genre, there wasn't a fantasy genre. It was just weird fiction, and it was mm-hmm. all in there. These little elements, and so. Uh, I, I like all of those elements, if that if that makes any sense. And so I'm going to have elements of horror. You know, I see that like you read something like Clark Ashton Smith, or uh, you know um, Fritz uh, Leiber, and um, you you see all these elements coming in Michael Moorcock. And all these people were friends as well, so they're cross-pollinating their ideas, what if, what if. And I think that's where a lot of that starts. It starts with a what if thing. You know, Tim, uh, when when we released the last episode of this, just uh, we had we dropped a week ago from when we're recording today, uh, we were talking about Clark Ashton Smith and how he was connected with all those folks and and stuff. Oh yeah, well, yeah how that cross pollination happened. Well, so was Lovecraft and and, yep. and Lovecraft and Howard. They wrote each other. They all you know because they were they were in like you know kind of like Dungeons and Dragons and and Pathfinder and stuff. Like this is a small community. It's not it's not a lot of people doing this strangely enough probably because it's just takes a certain type of goofiness or whatever and then and then the ability to sit down for weeks at a time and and make a a game that's gonna you know (laughs) do whatever it's gonna do but you know so it's that cross-pollination of ideas and the original you know what what sparked me about the original Dungeons and Dragons when I was a kid were were all these different elements things some things that were horrific and then juxtaposing against those things that are non horrific or, or or whatever and and I think that's just my personality type like I'll sit down and listen to classical music jazz thrash metal hip hop I don't care like I don't care what it is if it's something of interest if if it feels authentic to me if it moves me I'm going to I, I will pursue it and 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 find it so I don't know that. You know, I do get I, I do get uh, categorized as being able to do horror, and I do like it a lot. Um, I don't know that it's my favorite genre, 
actually my favorite genre is probably philosophy but you know who cares about that <laughs> in the game unfortunately <laughs> i try to inject it in there but he's at a lodge with 10 philosophers <laughs> I, I would do that you know it's a tall order on the gm there come, bud <laughs> come, come play in my planescape game it's kind of like that <laughs> you know you have all those different philosophies in planescape which is fun but again, yeah. for most people, that's like blue cheese. You either really appreciate that or you're like, ew, it's moldy. <laughs> <laughs> this is mold on here. <laughs> well, some people are into that. Landscape blue cheese. <laughs> you know. I, I've i actually never heard of Planescape. Can you give me a, a quick download on that and, and, and why it's so heady? Um, Planescape, it's, it's not heady. It's a goofy. I think it came, Planescape was one of the last greats, and I think it's a great setting. It's one of my favorites, but it was one of the last big settings that was released by TSR before they really shifted over and became Wizards of the Coast. So it, mm-hmm. it's, uh, I guess it would be second edition Dungeons and Dragons rule sets. Um, and it was Monty Cook did a lot of this stuff and uh, Ray Valise and Wolfgang Bauer. Wonderful authors, but the, the premise was it was all set in the Outer Plains. And so there's all these different factions, uh, not only the perspectives of all the people living in around the great circle the cosmic wheel of you know Yisgard and 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 um you know the nine or the the abyss and and nine hells of Bator or whatever the blood wars um but you also had all these people that are living in the center of this in this weird neutral the zone in sigil the city of doors and they all have different belief systems they're called they they have factals and you know some of them the dust men believe that you know we have to help all the people that are actually dead to get to where they're supposed to go and then the the harmoniums are like hell-bent on order and the athars are just like well there's no such thing as real gods they're just they're the same as us except really really powerful but they're not gods and if we raise a god then we can prove that they're not there and then you know the the signers believe that they're the the single most important important force of the universe is you because you're creating all of this with your brain and so they're just they're running around doing all this really goofy stuff so it's uh-huh. you know in the outer planes where you know you could just walk down the street and there's a demon here and an angel here and then there's just a little petitioner on his well way to figure out where he's supposed to be going in the afterlife and you know it's just goofy it's a mix of every level all at once and everything in the universe all at once and some of them are dead and some of them are moving through it. And That's absolutely wild. It's <laughs> because you think of, you think about it. It's like those belief systems are so fun to run in a setting that has direct ties to each of these planes, right? It's, it's, it's like right there and it's almost the melting pot because of that, but also in spite of that, right. It's happening. And, and I think, you know, I, I think it came at a time in, in, in that particular system where they were really getting to the tail end of that rule system. It needed to be revised. It needed to be redone. And the rules were so thick and complex that you, you don't need them to kind of do Planescape. Again, it's like a real fudgy-wudgy game. You can fudge <laughs> a lot of that stuff because it's it, it becomes a lot more of a social game and a lot more role-play, I think, by nature. Because, of course, if you're talking to, you know, Orcus, <laughs> what are you going to say to Orcus? It becomes that game rather than I'm going to I hit Orcus with my you know with my my pickaxe and it bounces off his toe jabs me in the eye and I'm dead because he's like the demon prince of souls. <laughs> but how do you engage him in polite conversation? Right, how do you engage him in polite conversation? Because that that's the tool you got. You you got your brain. 
I love that. That's so cool. I uh, I just finished read. I mean, uh, not an hour before we went on. I I just finished uh, the Redemption Engine. It was a James Sutter book, um, following up Death's Heretic from uh, the Pathfinder Tales series. Awesome. And both both of those books dive so deep into. They go into all of these different planes, um, and just like the the way he describes those the you know being on the plane of heaven where. Um, it knows exactly where you need to be, but is it infinite, so you can just kind of start walking, and if you need, you know you need to be somewhere, you can take whatever path you want to get there, but you're going to get there. And, like, just the, the concepts that they were throwing out really, uh, really sold me on going to another plane of existence in a game. It was just so cool. It is, it is really fun, and, and just being able to prep for that is, is fantastic. And Sutter, as a writer, is so deep he is such a deep individual he's such a brilliant brilliant writer and uh and he's a monster bass player by the way <laughs> awesome. he's really good i played with him uh we played gen con one year which is pretty fun <laughs> <laughs> not not many people can say that yes we, were, we performed at, at gen con we had a, a bunch of us had a, a band um called Rockonomicon and, and we played at the, we played at the Emmys one or the Ennies one year the, the N-World thing which is pretty That's fun amazing. and uh, wow. I've, I've done a couple of things with James since I, I built it like an effects pedal for him I mailed it to him on the <laughs> Oh, that's Everybody sick. at Paizo thought like the, the battery went on and the eyes came on. It like it lit up. It was like a little Pathfinder goblin, and they they were like, "Is it a bomb? Did Hitchcock just mail us? Like, is it gonna blow up?" <laughs> he decided we should have put him on that adventure. He's gonna he's gonna kill us all. I guess Hitchcock's quitting because he sent us a mail bomb. He's a metal box with a glowing thing. So it must have been a pretty good battery I put in there. That's all I got. Yeah, right. All the way to Seattle from New York, but. <laughs> <laughs> so you made an effects pedal. Yeah. That's pretty sick. Well, it's like making a dungeon. Go on. Right? It's, okay. it's, 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 you know, it's electronics. This is maybe you have an input and an output. You got to get sound in and out and you send the sound through a whole bunch of little challenges. And by the time it gets out, it's changed. It's the exact same thing. It's a resistor here, which was your monster and your capacitor here, which is when they find their stash of, you know, gold and new magic weapons and we're powered up and you know an op amp the same thing you know it's not it's not that different it's it, we're, it's we're gonna get you on starfinder so you can do like an adventure that is just that uh, your your adventurers in a machine uh oh my gosh i'm so glad i don't have to write that <laughs> tron that's what that is it's this yeah, tron, that's, the adventure that's, path. tron the adventure path yeah, then then you have to be super accurate, and then everybody comes and tells you that you made a mistake with your engineering, and you're like, oh yeah, yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> I never said I was an engineer. I don't really want to write sci-fi for that reason. <laughs> how does that work? It works like Chris Perkins is great at this. I'll ask him. Is well, how does that work? And he's like, by by magic. It's it's, it's awesome. science infused with magic. Like like in the old days, right? You know, they instead of dark vision before it was dark vision. You remember it was infravision. And infravision worked by infrared rays. And so what and how it worked in the game is somebody's like, well, I have infravision. Oh, yeah? Well, yeah, well, I can see that. And, and it it got into a 30-minute argument every time somebody said they had infravision of whether they could see the footprints or whether they couldn't see the footprints or how much heat was coming off. And then, like, then 3.0 comes out, and they're like, it works by magic. And it works like this, and we're done. And I was like, oh, my God, I can finally play a game with a character that, that can see in the dark. <laughs> 
because I'm not going to get in this benign argument over whether you can see the footprints or not for 30 minutes. Like, I just want to play the, the damn game. <laughs> Who cares? See the footprints. <laughs> We're, yeah, it, Magic better start explaining more things. Absolutely. There are too many people that are... Uh, that are in tune with uh, the actual scientific workings. We have two engineers on our show, so <laughs> I, I love I'm afraid to wor- run Starfinder for them too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, it's 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 a nightmare when that starts to happen. And, and the funny thing is, people do it in a fantasy game all the time. They start complaining about like it's not real, and I'm like, you just cast magic missile. <laughs> Why are you complaining that this isn't real? What you- Sir, you are a half devil. None of this is real. It's a fantasy role playing game. You're gonna, you can complain that the jumping rules aren't realistic? Shut up. You're playing a guitar and it's making people shit their pants. That's clearly not real. Actually, <laughs> actually I, I okay. did a thesis on that in college. And there is a note called the brown sound. And if you go low enough in the spectrum and you get the right bass spin and you hit that right bass tone, it will cause you to do that. They discovered I it was in, an in urban the, myth. They, they discovered that in the 70s and they called it the disco dump because it was happening in a lot of these <laughs> the disco clubs where they had the low end frequency. It's, it's really, yeah, if you get too much of that low end frequency, it will, it will stimulate your bowels. <laughs> so like the next time you play at Gen Con, we have to be worried about that story breaking about the brown note yeah. hitting the, uh, yeah. the Ennies. <laughs> no, I'm not, I'm not doing that at the Ennies. I don't, I'm, I'm not playing the Ennies anymore. None of that. <laughs> Maybe maybe that's what the Paizo staff was worried about. Maybe they were worried that that was the effect you put in that pedal. Oh no! I I I, I <laughs> tuned it down I, way too low. I I I I have a reputation. I'm sure they're worried about way more than that. <laughs> <laughs> I am. I'm not. I'm not kidding. I am a gremlin. That that's that's well documented. <laughs> I, I break people. <laughs> oh no. Well, Tim, I got a little bit of an off-the-wall question if we want to change pace for just a second here. Sure. Um, One of the things that that came up when Griff and I were going back and forth, uh, trying to, you know, what do we want to talk to to Tim about? And one of the things Griff said was, let's ask him about Kingmaker because it's such an iconic AP. It's getting remade. Um, But specifically, that, that got turned into a video game. Are you are you a gamer yourself? Was was this cool? Were you involved in that at all? I uh, I was not involved in the making of the video game. That was 100% Owlcat, and they did a, a really, really, really nice job with that with that game. It was super duper. Did you play and it? I, I did because, of course, you know James Jacobs called me. He's like, "Hey Tim, you know, we, you know, I want to tell you we're turning Kingmaker into a video game, and and you can have a free copy." And I was like, "Yay, mm-hmm. dope." <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> My oh. kickmaker residuals have come in. <laughs> Not those. That's that's my re- my residuals was a free copy of the video game. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, you know, I knew that getting into that, so that's on me. Um, but yeah, I did play the video game, and I thought it was really good. And again, for um, the the tenth anniversary, I had to go back and play through the end of the video game and see the whole thing, and and I had to you know because I had to try to put that part back into. Um, game terms so people could play it as pf2 or 5e or whatever it's you know however they're going to do it for the 10th anniversary and golly that was hard i you know 
it, and and uh, I, I'm not sure what kind of job I did on it because I just read on James's post like I'm going to be working on this for a while and we're going to and I'm like oh I probably botched that <laughs> James <laughs> James has got his hands full now <laughs> oops but I, I tried my best so yeah it's 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 an interesting thing um a lot of people really liked that game what I did on Kingmakers again and I just did the first part of that adventure so a lot of that mm-hmm. you know you have Mike Cortez in there and Greg Fawn Jason Nelson you have a bunch of other really good writers writing that whole progression of this series and I didn't really you know I did have an overview of what was going to happen but again like I said like that was kind of could you, given to me in dribs and drabs until suddenly it was the whole thing yep. um so I didn't really know where where that was going to go, and and the start of that and the end of that certainly is. I, I recognize James's stuff all over it. I was like, did I? No, that's James. <laughs> he definitely wrote that. that. <laughs> so that's going to be a weird feeling too. It's like I I wrote this, but like going back and rereading it to see what got changed, what got left. Well, you you definitely know why things got changed or why they got left, and sometimes you're gonna you're gonna be like, oh, why? And sometimes you're gonna be like, oh, yeah. oh yeah, <laughs> that was <laughs> probably much better, you know. And 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 that's it's you know again a lot of it, some of it's opinion and and uh, what it needs to do in the context of other things further down that you don't see or. I think my, my favorite example of that is um, in Dungeon Magazine. I, I wrote this piece called The Distraction. And the, uh, the lord of it, his name was um, – I, I was thinking French. I, you know, I teach, I teach science for a living. And uh, I was doing some stuff with Foucault's pendulum, right? And so, so I gave the guy a French name. He was Lord F-O-C-U-A-R, Lord Foucault. And I was like, why did they change it? And I was like, oh – because everybody else read that as Lord Fucker. <laughs> That's why they changed <laughs> Got it. I really should have said that out loud with like a Brooklyn accent and and, and that wouldn't have happened, you know, yeah. so. <laughs> well, yeah, that's that's one of those things. If you're not reading it out loud, it uh, sneaks up on you. I've been there. Yeah. <laughs> Lord Fucker. <laughs> right. Lord Fucker. Swell, Tim. Thanks. I'm glad we paid you to write this. Jackass. <laughs> Jackass! When we first did Carnival of Tears, uh, who was the editor? Was uh, Jeremy Walker, and uh, I wrote that with my friend Nick Logue, phenomenal writer. Like Nick is, man, he is Gonzo. He is fantastic. And uh, so Nick and I wrote this in a coffee shop in New York City. We were just hanging out. He was living in New York at the time, and. We wrote all the middle encounters and everything as we forgot to write the beginning and the end. We just did not tie this thing together at all because we knew what was going to happen. So we were very excited about it. We were like, yay. And we were in a coffee shop. We were juiced up on coffee and we were singing like the weird carnival songs and everybody was staring at us. We we're like, <laughs> we're writing an adventure <laughs> with, with the ghastly things in it, right? We sent it in to Jeremy and about a week later, the two of us get this message that says, gentlemen, I have read your first draft of the adventure. And the news is not good. The news is not good. <laughs> is not I good. wouldn't know how to run this adventure, even if I wanted to. And Nick and I were like, even if I want to, which means he doesn't want to. And we're like, carnival of poop, carnival of poop. <laughs> Carnival Schmears. We had to go back and we're like, we need to get a beginning and an end and have this thing make some kind of logistical sense. Just got swept up in the moment. 
Well, it turned out, but I can see how that hook in the middle might get you distracted from the rest of it. <laughs> what? It's an Eden with his other head in a bag. That's awesome. Isn't that enough to... No, it's not. It has to have some continuity, folks. <laughs> it needs continuity. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, all right. Though. I, I, the imagery behind that... <laughs> It's a swinomancer. He's a pig sorcerer guy with bread paddles and he <laughs> That'd be awesome. <laughs> what could we call him? The swino- Big piggy? The swinomancer. <laughs> swinomancer. <laughs> did you uh did you guys uh write the rules for the exotic weapon proficiency pie filling machine or was <laughs> I, maybe. <laughs> it's the weapon he uses. Maybe. <laughs> He shoots hot pie filling at the enemy. That's great. Uh, it turned out eventually. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it a, it's a it. great module it, it, now. It, it, yeah, people people seem to gravitate to that one for some reason. <laughs> I guess people are twisted. Yeah. So so when you said you that that made it. Do you have do you have any modules or or books or a society scenario or something that just got left on the cutting room floor that that you really wish made it to print? Um do I have anything that's on the cutting room floor that I really wish made it to print? I you know, I think during that period of writing, mm-hmm. it was more we need you to write this Oh, there is one. There is one. When we were doing those boards, uh, Mike Cortez and I had this. Uh, I think Mike started the concept. We had one called Hell Cube. Okay. Hell, oh my God. And it was a giant. We created this whole race of people that had a track through the Underdark. And they followed through this track in their dungeon. The entire dungeon was a giant gelatinous cube. That was yes. that one. Hell cube, hell cube got cut, and then you know, <laughs> hell cube hit the cutting room floor. Hell cube, but yeah, definitely. And I, I, I think the idea for the cube was definitely bikes. But we had these, you know, these people that could swim through the cube in different parts, and and the adventurers would be going through, and like it would be splattering out. And, it was well, really well, good. Well, Tim, we, we might be reaching out in the near future to commission you to finish Hell Cube. <laughs> Hell Cube. I won't do it without Mike Cortez. You got you to gotta get him out of retirement. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're going to have to find his people. <laughs> Talk to him. Oh, man. That's amazing. That's like, uh, that reminds me of like the Cube movies. <laughs> the, the bad horror movies. <laughs> Hell Cube Zero. I love bad horror movies. Maybe, yeah. maybe that's the genre of horror that I like the best. Like Frankenhooker. Want a date? Want a date? <laughs> it's awesome. Horrible you're talking movie. to the right folks because I have yeah, never heard of Frankenhooker, right but I'm in. Oh, if, yeah. if, if you can find, great. if you can find, uh, when I worked in Tower Records, we got a whole pile of these things in. Like I worked in the the outlet for all the stuff they had to get rid of, which was a giant record store in New York for a while, and we had like two crates of Frankenhooker and the box, the video. It was a VCS box. If you touched it, she actually went want a date. It had a, like a little talking thing, and I would <laughs> go around the store and I'd hit all the buttons and make the whole Frankenhooker <laughs> display go crazy. <laughs> You're the dude at the Halloween store that hits all the skulls. I am. Yeah. Uh, That's amazing. Uh, the things, the things 
we used to do with our uh, with our advertising and like our you'd never find that today like a, a frankenhooker dvd case it's just, it was just dvd it was it was a vhs right right <laughs> yeah. giant, it was tape that was crazy we got frankenhooker in that and there was um what was the other one uh the the candy man right you know that movie? Oh, yeah. Candy oh, so yeah. we stacked the whole thing up, and it's New York City, right? And so I'm stacking the whole thing up, and I go around the other side, and there's the candy man. He's looking at me right in the face. I was like, oh, my God, it's a candy man. I dropped all this stuff right up. He was in there buying all this stuff so he could sign him and sell them. <laughs> <laughs> He's wearing costumes. He scared the hell out of me. I was like, ah, it's a candy man. Threw all the things up there, ran into the back room. He was right there. It was terrifying. Oh, God. You got to give everybody a warning before the Candyman shows up for a signing. Uh-uh. That's great. Yeah, he was buying all the you know, the overstock so he could, you know, go out and sign this stuff and make money. The poor guy. Wow. <laughs> well, the candy well, Tim. Man. <laughs> well, well, Tim, uh, we got a couple questions from, from our listeners if, if you want to feel them for us. That would be great. Sure. Sure. Just, me, just a few me. for you here. Build um, some questions. All right. So this one comes from user on our Discord, Ten Lawn Gnomes. Everybody knows him as Eric. Great dude. Um. So we we touched a little bit on this stuff earlier. Um. But I, I think there's there's still some good stuff here. So he asks if you have a favorite style or level range to write for, um, and what style of adventure or level range do you find easiest or hardest? I know you said um, you liked writing beginnings of adventures, even though it might. And then you know we had some difficulty with crazy, um, crazy stat blocks and stuff. So what what's easy? What's hard for you? I think I think the most difficult range is probably when they're. Uh, not super high mm-hmm. uh, that, that 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 space where they're high level in between super high because I mean really at that point it just gets screwy and you got like a lot of big stack blocks but it just yeah. you want to still make things challenging so people get to that upper level and I think that that uh, especially when you have a, a stacking system like Pathfinder gets really complicated to make sure that you're giving something that's uh, a good challenge and an accurate challenge Right, and and so I think that's probably the most uh, the most challenging is that level that uh, like twelve, thirteen, fourteen level. Yeah, you know, once you get beyond that, you have some of these mightier challenges coming down, and they have access to big spells, but the allies can do it. But it's it's just at a cusp where you don't want to just totally, you know, wipe them out, and but you don't want everything to be a cakewalk either. And I think. Uh, I think that's I think that's about the range that uh, the original 3.5 system really starts to to, to break down mathematically mm-hmm. too. So yeah. it's tough because when you get stuff that's like the CR that would be a challenge at that level, it usually then contains the stuff that these players are about to get access to, you know, at 15th level or whatever, but don't yet have. And so the monster has that rocket tag leg up on them that. Uh, that becomes super deadly, <laughs> right? Or, or, or the opposite. You know, it's there. You, mm-hmm. you have a bunch of, of lower ones that should be at that CR level, mm-hmm. but just really, you know, they're just going down. They're just not. They're not holding up against the players. So you have a whole bunch of, you know, a mob of something, and they're just 
mowing through it and it's it's it, it becomes a cakewalk so it's it's a hard thing to kind of balance and what was what was the rest of that question um the the other half of it was was geared more towards style so i know you you, you like your philosophy stuff if you if you can write it but is there something that 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 clicks really well with you we mentioned horror earlier you were you you like it when you can get it um I- I think it's you know again I am going to go back to if if I do have a style it's gremlin it's whatever I think I can put into the adventure that I'm working on that's really if I can get a twist in there if I can get something unexpected if I can really flip whatever the expectations of the players are going into whatever that adventure is if I can take mm-hmm. those expectations and flip them that's what I try to do so not necessarily in a specific style but as that's the way I like to run a game I like to, you know, I look for cliffhangers. I look for things like that. I wanted things, things that are going to get people engaged. And I think that's, I think it's probably from being a teacher, a school teacher. Uh, I teach middle school. Middle schoolers are all crazy, right? And they're just going to go, if you don't, if you don't go, look at this. And you, you can't do something that grabs their attention instantly. They are going to be all over the room, batshit crazy, you know, didn't anybody tell you not to stick a fork in an electrical socket at 13? No. <laughs> you know, <laughs> nobody ever did. Why not? You know, so it's, I look for those kind of elements and that's, and I can do that in horror. I can do that in science fiction. I can do that in fantasy. That's what I'm really looking to do. Cause I'm thinking about it from the perspective of a game. So that would be my style. I like game designing. I don't want to write novels. I think if somebody offered me a novel, I would probably try it. I think I would be awful at it because I don't know what the protagonists are going to do. I, I'm very clearly with the antagonists, yeah. And and, uh, and 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 I I like doing the window dressing and stuff like that. And it, I like doing rules mechanics. I'm in pretty much I think all the Pathfinder rule books. I had fun doing that too. And so I, you know, now there's it's just, if it if it has anything to do with a game and putting things together like that. That's what I prefer. What was the, what was the twist in hell cube? <laughs> not going to tell what was you the it twist was, at the, Oh, you want, ah, I'm not going to tell you what the twist thought we could get him. The twist was, it was a sphere the whole time. <laughs> it was a sphere the whole time. <laughs> it's not actually a cube. <laughs> All right. We've got a few questions from uh, a, a user on our discord Alex, uh, Thrushmore seems nice. Um, so I think well, I'm going to start with this last question because I think based on your answer to the previous question, I know what the answer is going to be. So you do, do you prefer being a player or the GM? I'm going to guess it's the GM then if this happens, right? Um, I prefer being the designer, honestly. How okay. about that? It's, 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 I read that question before. For and I thought long and hard about it. I really like playing because I like seeing what other people are going to do, and I enjoy watching how other people run a game and the design aspects of it. I enjoy DMing a lot because it's just something that I get thrown into. But uh, uh, again, for me, like I'm, I teach school, so it's like being the dungeon master every day, eight periods a day, right? Like I'm, yep, let me lead yep. you on this little science adventure here. So I, I do a lot of it, um, but. I think my favorite aspect of it is really thinking about the design, thinking about creating things for other people and creating uh, tools that somebody would need for to, to, to do a good game, like, you know, laying out the breadcrumbs, 
doing the set dressing? What are, what are these background characters? Am I giving people stuff that they need to tell a great story? Because I like watching the stories evolve. I like seeing what happens when, when, once they leave. And that, to me, is the real thrill. And so, so maybe I guess a player, because in that case, I'm doing more of that than I would as a GM. Wow. That's a, that's a, that's a very solid answer, Tim. Very solid Thank answer. You. <laughs> Thank you. All right. What's your favorite book you've ever written? Um, my favorite thing that I've ever written. That's that. That is a really um, geez. The, the easy answer for that is whatever I'm currently working on now, because that's what you're engrossed in. So whatever your current frame of mind is. But I, uh, I am very partial to uh, Forge of the of, of the Giant God. I I like that one. I think that might be some of my strongest writing, personally. I think I think I did uh, okay on that one. Solid. Excellent. Yeah. Very cool. And here we are. We were all expecting Hellcube, but he turned it around. I, it's not. There's there's another piece that I'm very proud of. It was a Pathfinder Society thing. It's called Hall of Drunken Heroes, which I know you guys with your beers can appreciate. Yes. And that, that mm-hmm. falls into that weird sweet spot. And it was the first time that they were going to allow high-level play in the Pathfinder Society. And um, I guess I... Uh, why I like it would be a spoiler. Should I spoil it? I mean, Can- listeners, if you don't want to be spoiled, don't listen for a couple minutes. Don't listen. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. This is a big spoiler. Or, or, or we could talk about it after the episode quick. Okay, fine. I don't want to spoil it for anybody. All right, so All right. no spoilers. All right, cool. We're not going to be like the rest of the internet. We're not going to spoil it for you. The only thing we're spoiling is the cheese. Go back to some blue cheese. All right. Yeah, we're going to give... But Hall, right. Hall of Drunken Heroes, definitely. There's, there's, there's a twist in that that I was, I was, I liked. I thought I did good with that one too. Okay, okay. Um, and then I think this is gonna be the last question of the night here, man. If given total control, what would your dream adventure be? So you can write whatever you want, man. Total, con- I, I don't know. That's tough because uh, I, I think. I think I have enough. Maybe I don't. I don't know. Um, yeah, you lost me on that last one. I don't know. I have no idea. That's that's uh, really. I think uh, my mood shifts enough that like I'd be like, oh, this is the greatest. Oh, this sucks. This is what I do when I go. <laughs> oh, I got this great idea, and I'm going to totally do this. And then then I get home and I write something completely different. And I go, no, this one this one was way better than whatever I thought before. So I don't I don't know. I mean, I just just to be just to be able to do it, I think is 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 uh, good enough, right? I I think. Um, I think honestly, if I had a dream adventure, then I'd be done. That's yeah, that's a that's an interesting take, but I get where you're coming from. Yeah, I I would be done. I'd be like, okay, I've I've done my dream adventure. You know what's next? I, so I guess that's where I'm at. It's you know I, I I feel like I get I've I've written some of them, <laughs> you know, already, which is awesome. It, it's it's it really is an honor to be able to have been able to write a lot of stuff for people like that and people that reflect on the work and watch it go out there and grow and change and come back and I did this with it or somebody else says I did this with you know and I did this with it and these giant spiders killed my characters and I'm like I didn't put them in there that was your GM they're not really your GM did that 
Hey, Tim, I got a bone to pick with you. I'm Just sure you did. Hey, listen, the, the weaver worm was in the book, Steve. That was oh, okay, never mind. I, 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 Steve, most times it's your GM that kills you, but I tell you, I, I killed your character. I did it. I knew this was going to happen. I saw it in my, you know, my globe of the future. And I was mm -hmm. like, there's this guy, Steve, and he's going to go through this thing. And, you know, let me just make this so it kills Steve. And it says in the book, and Griff will show you where it says, kill Steve. Yep. Uh, Tim, so, right, I, I, don't, I don't think you're right too, think you're too far away from the truth here. It's right in the liner <laughs> notes. It says, kill Steve. Kill Steve. In real life. <laughs> All right. Wow. <laughs> in real life. <laughs> Well, Tim, this has been an absolute pleasure, man. Um, really appreciate having you on and everything you've written. It's a lot, a lot of fun to play with. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. It's This was a lot of fun for me. No, this has been an absolute blast. I I didn't know we'd get some of the metaphors we got tonight, and I absolutely love them. <laughs> and I, uh, I feel like I only, <laughs> I only ask like half my questions. I know. We got into so much good stuff. Yeah, I'm sorry. You you want to do a quick ask of a couple little questions? <laughs> oh no no no! I mean, you answered most of my stuff. It just wasn't in order because we were all over the place. But that's not a bad thing. Well, you know, Steve is very Type A. He sends you an agenda, and then uh, we riff all over. And, it. <laughs> and again, I'm Type Gremlin, so I was <laughs> exactly. Let me, let me see this agenda here. <laughs> we're gonna start my this way. <laughs> all right. Well, there's there's one piece of the agenda that that I absolutely do not want to skip. It's a wrap up here, just real quick, Tim. So um, is, is there anywhere out there that, that you want people to, uh, is, is there any way, you know, social media you want to promote, a, a book coming out, a piece of writing that you want to promote, anything just to say, hey, if you, if you like what I do, check out this, or um, you could at me here. Okay, well, you can't add me anywhere because I have no social media. I'm, I'm a total Luddite when it comes to that. I'm terrible about that. How you guys found me, it's because uh, Cosmo, great guy. Um, and he was like, oh, these guys are fantastic on their show. And I was like, okay. But uh, I, uh, um, Frog Egg Games is coming out with uh, a, a Central American style setting that I worked on with my friend uh, Tom Knaus, which I'm very excited about. Uh, I, Pathfinder 2 Bestiary just came out. I have some stuff in that, which is pretty cool. Um, Pathfinder 2 Bestiary 2. Um, what else? Uh, Bloodlines and Black Magic with Storm Bunny Studios, which is like a modern occult game. I'm having a great time doing that with Jay Sonia and Clinton uh, Boomer. Um, uh, we're doing our own kind of D20 intuitive version of that. And uh, I'm trying to crank out some stuff for the GM skill DMs guild and, and uh, probably do an adventure on that pretty soon too. set in Eberron because I haven't written Eberron since 3.5 and I kind of want to go back and visit that again. That's so cool. I think that's everything. Damn, and Kingmaker. And Kingmaker. Yeah. It's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hands in a lot of systems right now. <laughs> yep. It doesn't mean I'm well, accurate in any of them, but you know, I'm trying. <laughs> That's why I don't have social media. Like, if you have social media, then you can't do that. It's kind of a the choice. People just reach out to you and tell you <laughs> you messed them up. Yeah. Trust me, I know. <laughs> well, uh, listeners, if you like the conversation that we had, which if you listen to our show, I, I know you just enjoyed, um, check some of that stuff out because I think, uh, you know, Steve 
tell me if I'm uh, if I'm overstepping here, but uh, I think we better check out uh, some of this occult stuff real quick because uh, I want to turn into a werewolf. It'll, is that a is that a mechanic in the game? Can I turn into a werewolf in a, in an abandoned factory? Uh, you can do that for real, and and, and that would be in uh, you know Anton Lavey's book, The Devil's Notebook. Uh, yeah. <laughs> wow, you just had that ready to go. He just had it up. <laughs> uh, I, I'm, I don't know if you've seen my house is just books and guitars. Books. So it just yeah. it happens to it just happens to be there. It's a good book. I, I could pull the Clark Ashton Smith off the shelf too, like that too, and you know, Ooh. it's just I just piles of it. I have a father. I, mean, I won't I say I didn't prep this. But I, I did, if, if my camera would allow me to see it, I have a couple of years ah, there you <laughs> that go. I brought onto the show. I have nice. uh, Carnival of Tears, obviously Broken Moon, and then uh, Palace of the Fallen Stars. That was fun, too, I think. That was, that was yeah. Well, yeah, because in that one, Conan you're working on crack. with... <laughs> yeah, Conan, Conan with a... Um, a drug <laughs> with habit. A, yeah, and a uh, chainsaw. And a chainsaw. There you go. <laughs> All right. Yeah, well, was- I, th- I think we got to wrap it up for tonight. We don't want to take too much of your time up, Tim, but this has been an absolute pleasure. I mean, if if, if you ever want to come back. Sure. We will absolutely have you back. I want a game with you. That's welcome. what I want to do. I want a game with you. That's what I want to do. Absolutely. I want a game Consider with you guys. Done. I think that would be fun. Done. Definitely. Oh, yeah. Well, as, as I like to say at the end of these, Tim, you succeeded. Your will save. Oh, you good. made it out of the zone of truth. Um, uh, Griffin, what do you want to say? I mean, listeners, just finish your drinks. We'll see you in two weeks. Later. <laughs> <laughs>